Well, good morning to you, and uh, Merry Christmas, almost. Uh, I love this time of year. I I love, I don't know, the culture of American Christmas. Not as much as the things that we celebrate, not as much as the things that we sing about and rejoice in as Christians, but, but I do love the... Well, the culture of Christmas. I, I love the coziness of Christmas. I love, that's going to sound pretty feminine, but I love cuddling and sweaters and cold outside and snow and tea brewing when you're cold. Those kind of things. We have a, a blanket at our house that we often cuddle up with. It's been around for a long time. It's a Harley Davidson blanket. So let me, that isn't just to, you know, kind of, fix the fact that I just said I like sweaters and cuddling and all that. Um, This Harley blanket is actually like a soft sweater. Uh, I don't know why they would make a Harley blanket of soft sweater material, but uh, apparently they thought those went together. And um, so it's not so much that we're into Harleys, although I like motorcycles, but this is a soft blanket. It's, It's made up of threads that aren't, you know, as small as what you'd sew with, not as thick as yarn, something in between. And each thread you could pull through, and boy, it just keep coming. Each thread has different colors in it, depending on what part of the motorcycles it landed on in this motorcycle blanket. Well, God's word is something like that. The Bible is like a blanket with many threads, and it's a big blanket. We're often up close to it, and so we can't see the expanse of it. Can't see the forest for the trees. Sorry, can't see the trees for the forest. Well, one way to help us see what the Bible is doing is to pull on one thread, one theme that's in the Bible, and to see it, to see how it moves, to see what it's connected to, to see its different colors and the different parts of the blanket of God's plan, blanket of God's word. So last Sunday we did that a little bit. We pulled on the thread of this promise. and It's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. Starting with Genesis 3, there's this promise that there's going to be one who's born of a woman and he's going to be the answer for defeating Satan and sin and overturning the curse. And then the promises just keep getting enlarged, keep getting different angles to the different promises. So... The word picture I used last week was that it's something like different triangles, fabrics of, uh, triangles of fabric that would make up a quilt. Each promise its own little triangle, and when you put them together, this quilt shows us a picture of, of Jesus. In fact, it could be none other than Jesus. Only Jesus could have fulfilled that intricate recipe for saving hope that was given throughout the Old Testament. Well, today I want to pull on a different thread to go back to that word picture. The thread of where does God dwell? How and where does he show us his presence? Now here's why this is important, especially at Christmas time, especially recognizing that some of you here, you're not Christians. You come because someone invited you. We're glad you're here. But I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to take a basic knowledge of the Bible for granted. Talking to Christians and non-Christians this morning, So maybe you don't understand the basic story of the Bible. Whether you're a new Christian, an old Christian, or not a Christian at all, it might be that the Bible just feels to you like a collection of sayings. It probably doesn't help that there are chapter numbers and verse numbers in our Bible added later on after the biblical writers wrote all this down. 
It probably doesn't help that a lot of Christians refer to their favorite verse. And so it sounds like there's just a collection of sayings throughout the Bible. And I like this one and I like that one. Well, Proverbs is a book that does that. It's a collection of sayings of wisdom. But the rest of the Bible is, well, it's a mix of different genres of literature. And one of those is history. And so where even, where even you have poetry, or even you have um, prophecy, different genres, but they can fit into a timeline. They tell a story. You can piece this together. You can map out the story. You can get something of the plan. I want to try to do that today and give you something of a Bible 101 to those who maybe don't know the basic story of the Bible. Or maybe you don't understand why Jesus came. What he's about. Well, it might help to give you Jesus 101 to back up a bit and see why the Bible says he came, why it was needed, why it matters that he came. And we still sing it 2,000 years later. Maybe you don't understand what's to celebrate about Christmas besides the cultural and familial stuff that I love too. Maybe for you that's all Christmas is and so you wonder why Christians get excited and and sing these songs of theology and doctrine and history and promises. Well, this is a Christmas 101 message then. Or maybe, maybe you're a Christian, maybe not, but you think that Jesus' is coming means now God forgives. And that's true. Jesus came to forgive. He came to reconcile us to God. He came that we might be redeemed. And that's nice. That's good. It's more than nice. But I think some of us think it's just nice. Jesus came that we might be forgiven. That's handy because I like to sin. But there's more to the story than just Jesus coming and now we can be forgiven. This is something like a Christianity 101 message. Did you ever cheat a novel by reading the last chapter right at the front? Amen. Well, I don't know if it's cheating, is it? I mean, sometimes you do that and, you know, you lose the suspense of what's going to come, of course, but, but it can help you with what to look for. So let's do it. Let's cheat. Let's look at the end of our Bibles. Look at Revelation 21 to start. It's actually not the last chapter, but it's practically the last chapter. It's the one before, and it clearly gives us a theme here, the consummation of the age. This hasn't happened yet. It's telling us what's to come. What's the end of God's plan? It'll go on forever and ever, but there'll be this, what we call consummation. There'll be this closing chapter. And here's what it'll look like. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John writes. Not the same heaven, not the same earth. A new heaven and a new earth. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem, but a heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's going to be that heaven and earth meet. Heaven and earth become one. This Jerusalem from heaven will be like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, John says, from the throne saying, Behold, here's the key part, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And of course, other good parts, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. 
The end of the story will be God dwells. God dwells with his people. He dwells with them forever and ever. He will be with them forever and ever. Now, how does that relate to the story of Jesus? Well, we actually sang it a few times this morning. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Several names are given of Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus means God saves. In those days, Jewish culture and even Greco-Roman culture, giving a name to someone with meaning had meaning. My name, Ryan, means little king. I'm little, but I'm not very kingly. So it doesn't really mean much in our culture. In their culture, it meant a whole lot. Jesus is God saves. He's Emmanuel. God with us. Now, Jesus was a common name, but Emmanuel wasn't. And it's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, some 700 years before Jesus actually came. So you have, at the end of the book, Revelation 21, God will dwell with them forever and ever. Then you have Jesus' name being Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's here. And what's that quoting? It's quoting 700 years before Isaiah chapter 7. You're going to have a virgin who bears a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, Emmanuel being God with us. Okay, now we see a thread, don't we? Remember the picture of a blanket? Let's pull on this thread of God's presence, knowing now that it's clearly a thread. And let's see the different colors and the different parts of the blanket of the Bible. By the way, I should be very clear up front that in one sense, God dwells everywhere. He always has. That's his nature. Theologians say he's omnipresent. He, he is everywhere. He's a spirit. He's in heaven and he inhabits the earth. He fills it in then some, it says in the Psalms. But in another sense, God reveals his presence in specific times and in specific places in special ways. So there's a sense in which God shows up there and shows up here and he's really there and, and not as much over there. So while we believe that God is everywhere, and he's always everywhere, and he sees all, he knows all, he's near even when he seems far away, what we're going to do today is pull in the thread that talks about where he really shows up, where he shows his intimate presence. And there are ten different sections of this in the Old Testament. So you notice on your sermon notes page, there's a lot there, more than we usually have. One way of uh, using that sermon notes page is to fill it out, and then after we're done today, tear it off and keep it in your Bible. That's something like one way of sketching a map of the whole Bible, so that when you read in this Old Testament book or that Old Testament book, at least you can put it in something of a timeline, something of the order of God's plan. Let's start at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing is God's presence enjoyed. It's perfect. God says, behold, it's all very good. Adam and Eve enjoy God's presence in the garden. He walks with them in the cool of the day. It's not just good to be in the garden because it's it's like a tropical oasis. You can be naked and not even cold. It's more than that. It's not even a great place because um, it's not such hard work. No, it's a great place. Because God is there. It's a blessed place, yes. 
It's a, it's a place of peace, yes. I'm sure it's beautiful indeed, but it's a place of his presence, and that's what makes it best. There's no church in the garden. Everything is related to God. Everything is worship. Everything is done in relationship with him and in communion with him. So there's peace Both horizontal peace, Adam and Eve getting along, and vertical peace, getting along with God. There's enjoyment, there's harmony, there's purpose. Things make sense and everything is right. God's presence enjoyed. But then, you know, it turns a corner in chapter 3. God's presence is lost. Secondly, in your notes, God's presence is lost. Sin enters the world, and as soon as it does, Adam and Eve hide. They cover up their privates, and they hide from God. They're they're ashamed on a horizontal level. They're embarrassed with each other. They have things to hide now from each other, and more importantly, they have things to hide from God. So when he comes calling, they go hiding. Actually, a pretty decent instinct. Because though God comes and finds them and talks with them, and, and though he'll give promises, there, there are consequences for their sin. They're cast out of the garden. They're removed from the place of his presence. God guards the entrance to the garden with, with angels with flaming swords. You're not getting back in. And it goes downhill from there. In chapter 4, Adam and Eve have children, and the firstborn kills his brother. We saw that last week. And then you see in verse 16 of that chapter, Cain, the one who killed his brother, went out from the presence of the Lord, it says. In a sense, God's presence has already been lost, right? In another sense, Cain went further away from the presence of the Lord. They weren't in the garden to begin with. Not Cain, not Abel. But now Cain, after the murder of his brother, after he feels like he got a raw deal from God, he leaves the presence of God even more. And then the second half of the book, I'm sorry, the chapter, chapter four, describes Cain's offspring. It looks pretty harmless. They're managing, they're building things, they're creating things, they're developing skill, they're developing trades is what it looks like. And there's no mention of God. What it tells us is that they're going about business. They're just going about business. Nothing wrong with buying and selling. Nothing wrong with growing in a trade. There's nothing wrong with developing a skill. But that's all it is. No mention of God. In chapter 5, there's a repeated chorus to describe humanity's plight. It gives a, a list of who's lived and, and who, who gave birth to whom. It's a genealogy. So-and-so lived so many years and he died. There's the chorus. And then he had so-and-so, and and he lived so many years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. It just keeps going. Guy after guy, regardless of how long they lived, they died. Because at the beginning of time, God said, the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. God's making his point through his word there. Chapter 6, the earth is destroyed and God starts over with just one family. And and you might think, okay, God's presence is showing up with Noah, right? Yes and no. He's communicating with Noah, but almost on a need-to-know basis only. 
He tells Noah to build the ark and tells Noah that judgment's coming, but it's not the garden-like presence of God. It's not walking with God in the cool of the day. Even after the flood, they, they hit dry land. Maybe God will speak then when he says, get busy multiplying. You're only a family. I've got a big world here. Get busy multiplying. That's about all he says to them. Then in Genesis 11, now of great humanity, they say, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The problem here, like Genesis 4, is not that they're doing something or they're building something or that they're skilled in something. God isn't against big towers. But they're doing it for self-glory. They're doing it for themselves. They're doing it for their name. No God in view. So God judges them. They are scattered. And again, now there's no place for God's presence. These opening chapters of Genesis give us the beginning. That's what Genesis means, beginnings. And that's important. These opening chapters establish for us what the problem is that will come to find solution in Jesus. If we get the problem wrong, we'll surely seek a different solution. The Bible says that the problem is we're separated from God. We were made to commune with him. We were made to worship him. We were made to talk to him and him to us. And that relationship's been broken and we're born into a humanity of rebellion. We're born with the same attitude that led this humanity into sin that we can be like God. We can be our own God. You may disagree that that's the problem out there. You may think it's educational or social or political. But the Bible insists this is the problem. Sin has entered the world. The relationship with God has been broken. And his plan is eventually to restore it. That's God's presence lost. Thirdly, we see God's presence promised. As the story with Abraham begins in chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he speaks. He reveals himself to Moses, I'm sorry, to Abraham. He he talks to him and he makes some big promises to him. We saw those last week, right? God promised to Abraham that he would be great and that through him there would become a great nation from his offspring, And then that offspring would somehow eventually bless the whole world and that God would give them a land to dwell in. And what we know from later on in the Bible, that land promised to Abraham was, yes, a land flowing with milk and honey, but it wasn't just a a sweet land, you know, great climate. Why not live here? It's, it's not, you know, the, the, the Middle Eastern version of Albuquerque. We get 330 days of sunshine a year. This is the place God has blessed us with. Well, he's blessed him with this place that I'm sure was nice. Yes, it's flowing with milk and honey. Yes, they'll inherit a lot as they move into this land, but the point of the land is what? God's presence. That'll be the answer to all the blanks this morning. Not the ones on your sermon notes page, but the ones I ask you about. His presence, that's what we're after, right? That's what we're seeing develop. That's the thread that we're pulling on. And that's the purpose of the land that God is promising to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then from there, God just repeats his promises to Abraham's offspring. 
to Isaac and to Jacob and, and to Judah. God shows up and repeats the promises again. Abraham has kind of rascal sons, and yet God shows up and repeats the promises again, showing that the promises depend on him, not on sneaky Jacob. Fourth, we see this. We move to the next book of the Bible, and we see God's presence going before. That's a phrase used in the book of Exodus. Remember, God comes to Moses and then leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. They're now a great multitude. We saw that last week. But they're in captivity. They're not in their land. They really don't enjoy anything of God's intimate worship presence like some of God's people had known throughout the ages. But God shows up, he speaks to Moses, he leads them out by a mighty hand, and then while they're in the wilderness, it says God goes before them. A pillar of cloud is what it looks like in the day and fire at night. They can see the presence of God. Can you imagine? They can see something of God's revelation of himself. They know that he's right there. They know that he's plowing a path for them. They know that they can just stay on track with God and where he's going. That's comforting. Yeah, but you also have these promises where God is saying that he'll dwell with them. And it just hasn't happened yet. Like in Exodus 29, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they'll know that I'm the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. That I may dwell with them. His whole whole purpose in bringing them out. To dwell with the people. And right now, he's leading the people. He's before the people, but he's not with the people. He's not in the midst of the people. In fact, during this time, Moses meets with God in a very intimate, powerful sort of way. There's a tent of meeting, it's called, and it's outside the camp. So when they stop, they set up camp, and then they set up a tent of meeting outside the camp, and Moses goes into that, and then they'll see the cloud or the fire descend to the tent of meeting. And there God will talk with Moses. It says, like a man talks with another face to face. Wow. But the people just watch. They see this happen. Moses is accurate in coming back and telling him what God said. He's a faithful priest, you could say. He goes between the people and God. But God isn't dwelling in the midst. And eventually this is tough on Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God very boldly, if your presence won't go with me, the with is so important there, if you do not bring us up from here with us, how will it be known that we found favor in your sight? Is it not your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Anyone can come and watch you over there. Aren't we your people who are in your midst and you with us? You are God, we your people. And from that time forth, there's no more mention of the tent of meeting. The Lord says to Moses, this thing you have spoken, I will do. He will now be with them instead of just before them. And so God gives the prescription for his tabernacle, his own tent. 
During the day, they'll follow this cloud. At night, they'll follow this fire. When it stops, they'll stop. When it goes, they'll go. When it stops, they set up his tent. It's kind of three tents in one, but it's his tent. It's where God dwells. When they make it, God shows up. He dwells in the midst of the camp. A scary thing knowing there has been sin. There's ongoing sin. So this is the fifth thing. God's presence in a tent or what the Bible calls a tabernacle. You see this in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. By the way, just pause here. How close do you want your God to be? Maybe you can sympathize with the Israelites, not Moses, the Israelites who said, we kind of like it like this. God's over there. And Moses, you tell tell us what he said. You go meet with him face to face. We don't want to do that. We don't want him to see everything that happens. What if I said, God is coming to Albuquerque tomorrow? Now, some of you would say, he's already here. We already covered that, right? He's everywhere. And then others would say, you're crazy. I'm out of here. That's a cult. And I'd be with you, really. I mean, if I saw a newspaper clipping that said, God is coming to Albuquerque tomorrow, I would think, boy, the journal has really gone downhill. This is, this is shabby. What kind of David Koreff sort of guy is predicting this? But let's just suppose you knew it was real. Somehow it was credible. You knew when it said, God is coming to Albuquerque tomorrow, He's coming. What's that mean? You going to change anything about what you do tomorrow? How does it affect us knowing that he's here in a different way than he was here yesterday? What if God were coming to your home? I know, he's already there. Or you don't believe he's going to come in some special, uh, unordinary sort of way. But what if you knew that he was coming in this very special, unordinary way? Wouldn't you say, oh man, well don't mess up tomorrow, right? Isn't there a scary reality about the presence of God? And and the Israelites get this and they say, how about you just go and talk with him? Now he's in the midst of the people. Yeah. He'll have it that way and only that way. He's not content to be God out there, God at a distance, God sometimes, God down the block, God available to you when you have a problem, but not in your life if you don't. He is not the God of deism. And I think that's probably the God that most of us have here in America, even if we don't call ourselves deists. That's a God who got this thing going, however he got it going, Could have used evolution, maybe. Could have used creation. But he got it going, and and really, he's uninvolved. The Bible tells us that he's intricately involved. That he is interested in dwelling with his people. He's, He's intent on having intimate presence with his people. So he dwells with these people. Out in the wilderness, in his own tent or tabernacle, in the midst of the people... And this is repeated over and over. This will keep happening. Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you be my people. 
And yet there's this tension all along. Because the people are never faithful, right? They're, they're never sinless. They're never righteous. They're never faithful like they should be. And so here's God in the midst of the people. And, and he admits his own struggle with it. How long? How long is it going to be like this? When will you be my people? When will you be faithful? I'll dwell in your midst forever and ever. But, but not when you're rebellious like this. Not when there's sin like there sometimes is. That's God's presence in a tent or a tabernacle. And then sixth, there's God's presence in a land and city. The books of Joshua all the way through to 2 Samuel describe God still in a tabernacle, but now in this land that was promised to Abraham. They move in, they get the land, they inherit what's left, and it's a blessed place. They set up shop. We talked about that last week. It's a place of God's dwelling. We have to see that. We have to see it's a place for God to be with his people in an intimate, powerful way. And yet he's still in a tent. Tents are hopefully temporary. I guess for some, maybe they're not. For most of us middle-class Americans, if we use tents, we use them to go camping. It's temporary. Generations into being in the land, God is still in a tabernacle. And so he begins to say, isn't someone going to make me a house? Starts a little bit with David. Work gets underway a little bit with David, and then it happens with Solomon, his son. God's presence in a temple. The seventh thing. So you see in 1 Kings 6, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house. The temple is not just a place where they go and do their sacrifices. It's a place where God is. It's a place where he dwells. It's in the heart of the city. And the city's in the heart of the land. He is in the middle of the people. And now in this glorious, majestic temple, he's... Presumably there for good. Uh, Not yet. Hold on. It leads us to the eighth thing where his presence is removed. Prophets begin showing up and confronting the sin of the people. They begin pleading for repentance and a return to the Lord and warning of a judgment to come. And eventually it's very clear that there's going to be a distinct judgment, a big judgment to come. They'll be removed from the land for at least 70 years. They'll be taken into captivity, away from their land, and then their city walls will be destroyed. The temple itself will be destroyed. This is recorded in 2 Kings 25, this sad day. Again, it's not just a a sad thing because they love their homeland. It's not just a sad thing because they have to go to Babylon and they don't like that culture. Or they don't know the language yet. Or something like that. It's sad because this says something so powerfully about God's presence and his withdrawal of presence from the people because of their persistent sin and hard-heartedness. So listen to Psalm 137. There are several psalms that demonstrate that the real core of the judgment was God withdrawing his presence from his people. Listen, Psalm 137 says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, our musical instruments. And our captors said of us, 
sing us some great songs, songs of Zion. Sing us one of those old Jewish songs of praise. And they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're not just homesick. How will we sing of his presence? How will we sing of his glory when we're here? And when the temple's been destroyed there. So it says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. What's the point of living if I forget why I'm here? If I forget what's missing? If I get used to Babylon? If I don't miss his presence? If I don't want his temple? If I don't want to go back to the city? If I forget the glory of God's presence in the midst of the city, in a temple that's his house? May my mouth just trap up. Stop eating. May my right hand just forget whatever it does, its skill. Why go on living if I don't remember Jerusalem as my highest joy? Well, in God's faithfulness, the ninth thing, God's presence is eventually restored. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe this. At the end of the 70 70 years in Babylon, they're allowed to return to their land and rebuild the walls and even rebuild the temple. They're restored now, right? This is good. This is exciting. Well, kind of, sort of. I would describe this part of God's plan as restored Kind of, sort of. I know that's not good English, but that's really what you see here. Because as they build this new temple, it was told by the prophets that this second temple was supposed to be greater than the first. And it wasn't. So listen to Ezra 3. We hinted at this verse, this passage last week. All the people shouted with a great joy and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They praised him for right reasons. They were excited for right reasons. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who'd seen the first house or temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. It wasn't as great. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, makes this very clear. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who remembers the first temple? The one built under Solomon. How do you see it now? The second temple. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You know, with both the tabernacle before this and the first temple under Solomon, they built it. And they saw God's glory enter it. Either a cloud or a fire descended and you could say, we saw him go in. There's no description in God's word for God's glory entering the second temple. The Ezra-Nehemiah temple. The after Babylon temple. There's no description of God ever taking up residence in it. And some scholars have noted that at least five different Things are missing in this second temple that weren't there in the first. Things that describe or sort of are emblematic of God's presence. They're symbols that he's there. Foremost is the Ark of the Covenant. You might have forgotten that, that when the Chaldeans came in, the Babylonians took over after them. 
and, and they ransacked Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box of his presence. Remember that from Indiana Jones, right? You don't mess with the Ark. Why was Indiana looking for it? Because they took it long ago and they've never found it. And they built the temple without it. That wasn't wrong to do, but apparently God never moved in. And yet at the same time, listen to Haggai 2, just a few verses later, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, God says, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. I mean, this is after the second temple's built. It's now talking about someday, eventually, it'll be greater than the former, the first one under Solomon. And you say, yeah, hope that's coming soon over there in the Middle East, in Jerusalem. I don't think that's what it's talking about. We'll keep looking. We'll keep watching. Let's pull on this thread and see where it goes. The tenth thing is God's presence promised. The prophets give us Well, there are 17 books of the Old Testament prophets. And on a timeline, there are some that are before Babylon, some during Babylon, and then some after Babylon. But really, they all have the same message. The message is this. There's sin to be confronted. There's judgment that's coming if you don't repent, if you don't turn, if you don't put God as preeminent. And on the other hand, there's this promise of one to come. We saw that so much last week, didn't we? One to come and also an age in which he comes. A glorious age. Isaiah 40 talks about this when it says, Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Or Ezekiel 37. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I'll be their God and they'll be my people And that sounds pretty commonplace throughout the Old Testament, except that Ezekiel 40 to 48, big chunk of Ezekiel, talks about a temple to come that'll be global. God gives him measurements. It's going to be this big, but but it also seems like it's global. It's kind of a mixing of metaphors, mixing what they already knew about the temple and God's presence with some symbolic stuff of what's to come. A glory that not only goes in and fills this temple that Ezekiel sees, but then there's a river running out of it that blesses the whole world. Just like was promised to Abraham, that God would bless the whole world. Coming from the place of his presence. You see the symbolism there? It'll be a river of God's presence running into the whole world. Zechariah is even more explicit about the global nature of this coming age when he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, I'll dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. Not just one, but many. And shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. The dwelling is going to get global. Things look so hopeful right now. The promises just keep getting bigger and bigger. And then 400 years of silence. Oh, boy, that sticks out like a sore thumb. In between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of what the New Testament records, there are 400 silent years. It's one thing for God not to be in that temple 
hoping he'll come back someday. But, but when prophets just stop saying, thus says the Lord, boy, it's, it's eerie. It's heartbreaking. And then, the last thing in your notes, God's presence in the flesh. Emmanuel comes, God with us. Or listen to how John puts it at the beginning of his gospel account. He says the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled. The word can be translated tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tent of God in our midst. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So when Simeon looks upon the baby there at the temple, what does he say? My eyes have seen, seen your salvation. Or when others see Jesus heal a man, it says, Luke 7, fear seized them all and they glorified God. They said, God has visited his people. John 14, Philip says, To Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever sees me has seen the Father. And in John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and on the third day I'll raise it up again. And of course, his his opponents say, this temple isn't great. It's not as great as Solomon's, but it took a long time to build. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? So John gives us an interpretive comment there. He says he was referring to his body, the temple, his temple of his body. He has now come. He now is that temple. He not only sees himself as the new temple, but but Jesus, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again, clearly points to the cross, the resurrection. The temple was again going to be destroyed, not so that we would be removed from his presence, but so that we would be brought in. You get this? I mean, you think he comes and this is it. And okay, now God dwells in the midst. This is great, full of grace and truth. And he dies. What? What a roller coaster this thing is. If it weren't for verses like 1 Peter 3. Verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Presence was the problem all along. How will a holy God dwell in the midst of unholy people? Well, Jesus came to be our holiness. He came to die in our place. He came to take the payment that we deserved and to give us the righteousness that we that we didn't deserve. We're told the payment for sin is death. So he died. And on the third day, he raised that temple up again. So God now can dwell with us as Christians only because Jesus died to take away our sins, to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to bring us to God. I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. I pray if you don't that you come to see it today. I hope you come to see that Jesus is is not just an interesting story. He's not just a a part of what we do culturally at Christmas. You know, it's not just a a novel story that we sort of tapped on, clamped onto. 
can't let go of. Some guy showed up, taught a lot, and people still sing songs about him. Instead, he is the center of history. This is his plan to move in, to be with us. Oh, he's so wonderfully persistent in his mercy, patient in his plan, so intensely personal. There is no God like this. On the market of gods available to you today, there is no God who's sovereign like this, who's planning things like this, who is as intimate as this, who is dead set, literally, on bringing us to himself to commune with us, to relate to us, to not just be our God and we his people, but to be our Father and we his sons and daughters. His presence is what we were made for. That's what's missing in your life. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Every other pleasure is small and short-lived. In Christ, there is the fullest pleasure. The eternal pleasure. You say, you Christians don't look any happier than me. I'd agree. We know it's coming, though. We've tasted of something of the new heaven touching down on a new earth. We've we've tasted something of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And it's still a broken world. We're still sinners. We're still struggling with depression and doubt and anger and rivalries and all kinds of nasty things. We believe God dwells in our hearts now. And he's not done. He's coming again, and one day we'll see Jesus face to face, and we'll be with him forever and ever. That was the end of the story that we read at the beginning of the story. Jesus is drawing near, whether we like it or not. He's either drawing near in your joyful salvation, or he's drawing near in judgment. He is not a God who will be domesticated. He is not a God to have at a distance or to reside over there or for you to tap in once a week or or for you to go get him if you desperately need him. He is a God who will be God. And he insists there's none besides him. But we can know the God of the universe because Jesus has come. That's what Christmas is about. 